0: For the past year, I've been digging into... What don't I like about DIY music scenes in particular and what could be done better with them? Um, David, I know that you have a background in music yourself and you also have a maker channel on YouTube. So you have these maybe two, I don't know how involved in DIY music you were back in the day when you were more involved in music, but you might be able to offer us two different perspectives here and, looking at the ethics of DIY culture and the maker movement and music scenes in particular, like have you noticed any crossover in how people approach DIY art and craft
1: and community and culture and, and things like that? Um, It's kind of weird. Somebody asked me just the other day about like, what are the similarities between, punk music and making videos and uh, they were thinking I was going to have the answer of like I have the same approach but absolutely Mm. completely different approaches when it comes to music I like things to be all right. let's get it on the first or second take let's not try to get it perfect Uh, I like imperfect audio like there is no right guitar tone you know there is no right drum sound it's whatever you want it to be but when I make my videos and I make my projects, I want everything to be so perfect. I I want them to be super polished, but I don't want my music to be super polished. So I really approach the two different art forms in completely different ways.
0: Yeah. So that's something that I have noticed a lot about people who are very, very dedicated to DIY music and that kind of an approach to their art Mm -hmm. is that it's not necessary, and I'm I'm like this too. To an extra I like to get um, an amount of polishing that I can afford to get without beating myself up too much and without like being too much of a per- perfectionist because that tends to be unhealthy for me personally. But you know, it's a big kind of theme that DIY is equated to not per- in- imperfect. Mm-hmm. But I think that's often because DIY is about learning how to do things on your own, and so quality is relative not only to the standards that individuals set for themselves and their work, but also what step of the learning process they're at in terms of doing that work. Yeah. And something that's always been interesting to me about the videos people put out in the maker scene is that there are like four different things happening in all of them. There's a person learning how to make a product in some DIY fashion, that same person is, not always, but often that same person is teaching the viewers how to make that product. And then there's the product itself that is being made and a video is being made, which is its own art form. So I'm curious how you approach your videos, whether they're more intended to teach or more intended to demonstrate a
1: product. Um, Boy, yeah, I think I go back and forth with that. Some things... I do want to teach and I want there to be this step by step. And then there are other things like uh, the other day I made a phone bench Mm -hmm. because phones used to be attached to the wall. So you would have this little bench and there would be a phone that sat on it. And then uh, you would also sit there and you would talk on the phone to your family Mm -hmm. and friends. Now we don't need it anymore. And so I found this old project in, in an old book and I recreated it. And the purpose of that video was to not teach, but just kind of show and tell type thing. Mm -hmm. And then on my other channel, I just put together a video. It's a 45 minute long video of uh, assembling a go-kart engine and Mm -hmm. that was to teach. And so I tried to, you know, I was, I had notes that I was following for the video and, uh, it's me talking the the entire 45 minutes trying to show exactly what I'm doing. So I take two different approaches and I think someday I'm going to, I tell myself this someday I'm going to find my own style and Mm -hmm. that's going to be it. You know, um, I would like my woodworking projects to be more art focused in the future. And maybe you will learn from watching those videos and you'll pick up a tip or two, but I, I've, I'm hoping they're more entertainment and more, more of like a like a wow factor, or just it's mm. trying to inspire creativity. Um, I don't feel the most comfortable teaching step by step on something because okay, there's always multiple ways to do nearly everything. Yeah, and then there are what some people might consider the right way or the wrong way, or this is not the way we did it. You know. In the 70s you know and so i could see myself moving away from step-by-step tutorials and just like let me try to teach you how to be creative Mm -hmm. instead of how to make a thing
0: well i think that's an interesting segue into one of the things that i had written down um which is that i think that if we're talking about the ethics of of diy culture or a diy approach to arts and crafts or anything like that then we necessarily have to talk i think about how DIY tends to be more inclusive to people and tends to give people more of more access, whether it's a community event, whether it is a cheaper or more frugal way to get art made, or whether it is just like you can pick up a tip or two from a friend or from a YouTuber. And then suddenly you have more access to this, this thing that you want to do. And so one of the things that interests me about the topic of DIY ethics is that it allows more access to people. And so I think that when we're talking about music or when we're talking about a craft that you want to learn or get better at, you know, we're talking about inclusion. We're talking about the ability for somebody to just step into a new hobby that they want to learn or a new community that they want to be a part of. And there I think we run into like, does the, this may not have anything to do with the quality of product or the quality of, of process or showing a process, but there there is not much barrier to entry there's not much gatekeeping going on it's it's um there doesn't tend to be a lot of like a restriction as far as what you can be a part of what or who you, who you have to know in order to you know get started at any, anything so whether you're intentionally teaching or not i think the opportunity that you're presenting other people to learn by modeling for people that diy is something that you can do too Mm-hmm. Um,
1: that's a big thing for me. Yeah. I remember, you know, back in the nineties, if you wanted to record your band, yeah, you, you had to go to the studio mm-hmm. and no, I, I even worked in, in a recording studio for a little bit. Like nobody goes to a studio anymore. Everybody has a whole, like you can have as many tracks as you want on your computer. You just need a way to get it into the computer. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I had a four track back in the nineties, but those things were insanely expensive you know and yeah. you know as a, as a 20 year old i'm living paycheck to paycheck i'm like i'm saving up a few bucks here a few bucks there to, and then my local music center had a like a layaway like i wanted this four track and i also wanted this drum machine i will pay you a hundred dollars every week until i uh until i can get it and i paid it and now and, and and then it just felt like magic when i got home with these two devices and and the thing is now with like you know, I do mostly woodworking on my channel. Mm. Like anybody can get into woodworking. Now you don't need a full shop full of tools and you don't have to go to a class. You don't have to know somebody who knows something about it. It's you, you can do a lot with a, with a $40 jigsaw and a couple of YouTube videos now. And with new digital tools like CNC's and laser cutters, if you have the money to, get those things that's basically an entire shop in one tool and uh Mm. the the barrier to entry is is far lower now you can you can find your way in and uh and get involved what is the
2: culture like around that in the the makers community because i think i mean we're all familiar enough with the the music scene where there's kind of those two main camps of like some people say that the barriers to entry should be higher because back in my day, you know, we used to have to track everything to live to tape and like sit there with a razor blade and cut it. And then you have those other people who say like, who the hell cares? Like it's in your head, just get it out. And it's great that anybody can do it. Is there
1: a similar effect in the maker scene? It feels like, and I could be totally wrong, but it feels like the older generation kind of looks down on the kids who can come in and watch a YouTube video and cut something up with a with a jigsaw. I don't, I don't know if that is true but that's just the way it feels to yeah. me but that's a good thing that's how that's how things change. New generations come in and take over and show the old generation that this is how we do it now yeah. No, that stuff's always funny to me
2: because you could like you go all the way back like with music at least like at a certain point you used to have to have a string quartet in your living room in
0: order to hear anything. (laughs) So it's like it's it's kind of a rabbit hole. So, yeah, I mean I've heard you talk on your podcast with Bob and Jimmy about like trying to explain to people what it is you do, especially if they're from the older generation. And it's (laughs) like if you you can call yourself a woodworker and by golly you've earned it, but you know if you're trying to say to to like someone older like oh yeah, I'm a woodworker. They're like, so what are you doing? You know, oh, well, I put stuff on YouTube and they don't really get what you're coming from. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to that maybe where like if you were to say to somebody in the, you know, DIY music scene um, or somebody outside of that scene, if you were to say like, oh yeah, I go to like an abandoned warehouse space every <laughs> week and I, I play a show in front of a bunch of punks who, <laughs> who just pay what they can and I'm not making a real living at it, but it's where I get my community fulfillment from. And, you know, like... It strikes me as as kind of the same where, you know, trying to explain to somebody who has had a lot of experience in sort of the, I don't want to say dignified, but more of like what was formally accepted as the
1: norm. Then there's a generational gap. Yeah. Gap of understanding. It's funny. If somebody asked me, what did I do for a living? I'll answer that in a couple of different ways. I mean, yeah. if a 20 year old asks me what I do for a living, I'll just say I'm a YouTuber and I'm like, cool. Mm-hmm. You know, if an 80 year old asks me what I do for a living, I'll just say I, I'm a woodworker. And then yeah. if they dig into it, I'll just say, well, I teach woodworking because I don't want to, I don't want to explain uh, YouTube videos and, and AdSense and uh, yeah. affiliate marketing. So yeah. That, that doesn't sound
0: uh, like the easiest explanation to give. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably the biggest ethical question in music is why choose DIY so that we don't get exploited? And that's sort of like the biggest, it's an anti-exploitation movement when it comes to an artist who is looking for representation or who is looking for an audience. And then often the way that we get that audience is we end up having to... Book shows at venues who require pre-sales or who are kind of going to rob us blind a little bit because their profit comes first and necessarily sometimes the profit of the people who are giving you the opportunities has to come first so that they can continue giving people opportunities and continue being a sustainable business themselves. And I guess so I would wonder what kind of things in the maker community are maybe analogous to that, if there are any at all but is there sort of like a capital E exploiter that you're kind of always trying to keep at bay or say like, we don't need you. (laughs)
1: Like, is there a man? Is there a man? Is is there a man? (laughs) 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 Um, You know, being a YouTuber means to make my living, I have to put sponsorships in my videos. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the running joke behind the scenes when a lot of old school tool companies or just old school companies in general will say, we'll give you a product for free and Mm -hmm. using your videos and we'll give you exposure. Yeah. And sometimes you have to teach them that, Hey, I'm actually giving your product exposure. This is what (laughs) I do for a living. You need to pay up or no deal. And there are plenty of people who are making online content who are happy just to take the free stuff. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not, um, but maybe it makes it harder for the people who are doing it for a living to ask for money because mm. I need a, I need a paycheck. So maybe they skip over me and they go down to somebody who has a smaller following, gives them a bunch of free stuff and they can get their exposure that way. So you'll see a lot of times my sponsorships are newer companies like Squarespace, um, Mm -hmm. things that have nothing to do with DIY or woodworking. And I actually like, I like the sponsorships that don't have anything to do with what I'm making because then they don't have any say in what I'm making in the video. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just making this up, but let's say DeWalt wants to pay to have an advertisement in my video and they give me tools and they give me like a pile of money. DeWalt then also wants... To know what I'm going to build, how long, how often I'm going to use Mm. their tools and, 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 uh, they want me to say all these bullet points where like these newer tech companies, like Squarespace and all these other ones, they don't care what the video is about. They just want their 60 seconds, mention our product, say it in your own words. And they're so fun to work with and, um, they never have any, have any changes. So, um, I forgot what the initial question was, but uh, that, that's one of the things that I kind of have to have to deal with behind the scenes quite a bit. So the advertisers are are quote unquote the man. The, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could have said all of that in in, yeah. in that sentence right there, but yeah, the advertisers <laughs> are the man. Yeah, I remember uh, in my gig playing days, like I would get to open up through for all these touring bands coming through. Mm -hmm. and and the bar would be packed there'd be 200 people in there and it's awesome we're playing in front of all these people but then there are three bands and then the main the headlighting band has a guarantee and then the doorman has to make something and then the bar takes theirs and then we would go home and we have to split 40 bucks four ways and we're just like (laughs) Mm -hmm. what this place was packed (laughs) um i remember but and i didn't get it then and i do now I have a friend who's just he's been booking shows for like 30 years at all these mm. different places all around town and I so respect what he does and I just remember there were times where bands were like super pissed and he had to lock himself into the bathroom because <laughs> they're banging on the door <laughs> asking for money and yeah it was just uh, crazy
0: I get it now I didn't then I've <laughs> uh, been there <laughs> I've been the one banging on the door. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not fun.
2: (laughs) How would you define selling out? And is there an equivalent in... Because that's another. I mean, we all know, like in music, that's like the thing, like DIY music, that's like the trope. Um, yeah. Is there an equivalent in the makers world, and how would you just define
1: it personally, whether as a musician or or as a maker or otherwise? Before I answer that, do um, does the word sellout get used? quite a bit still i mean i remember like back in the 90s and like mm-hmm. you know green day signed into geffen yeah. or whoever it was and it was it was a big it was a big thing i can't yeah. remember the mm-hmm. previous label lookout or something but yeah. it was a big thing and they lost a lot of fans and this was a it was a common theme over and over again and you know and we as as kids Wouldn't listen to the sellout bands because they set off to the big labels. But I don't know. Does that still get used now? I hear it. Yeah. Less
0: so, I think, in my opinion, because I think that the ways to get your art heard and seen and listened to are still there the way that they were in the 90s, but much less so. So you kind of have to take some leaps and bounds In a way that you might not have had to back in those days, just to find consumers, you know, Mm -hmm. just to find an audience, and so I think that yeah, probably sellout does get used a bit still, but probably less so because there are there's more of a necessity to quote unquote selling out, Mm -hmm. like, but people would define that in different ways, of course, too. But so, um,
1: I would encourage anybody who creates an art to sell out as much as possible. If somebody, if somebody wants to give you money so you can create something that wasn't there before, that is an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're a, a band or you make sculptures or you're a woodworker, not everybody gets to be creative for a living. Mm-hmm. And even though sell out, you know, in my day, it was a bad word. I would, I, I would encourage it so much. Now there might be people who would think that I am a sellout, you know, when I started making videos, I was doing it for fun. I was doing it when I would come home from work and there were mm-hmm. no sponsorships. And now nearly every video that I put out has a sponsor in there, but those sponsorships and that money allowed me to quit my job and start my own business. And we're looking for bigger sponsorships and not to, mm-hmm. I want to make more money, but not to have more money. I want to make more money so I can do things with the business. I actually want to, right. you know, I have bigger goals. Like I'll sell out to anybody if I can accomplish these bigger goals of like, I want to start a an art center here in Toledo, Ohio someday. And oh, nice. I want I want other artists to have a place to work on their art if they need to, or we can have shows. I've always wanted to book shows, not for a living, but I just, I just would love the opportunity to to book a music show, um, totally. have art shows. And when I leave this world, I want to leave behind some sort of art center that can run, run without me. So I will sell for all the money if I can, if I can accomplish <laughs> my dreams. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting. We had this conversation with a, with a friend a few weeks ago and, That friend was saying, you know, was defining selling out as when the when the balance of creative control shifts from you to whoever is paying. Oh,
2: okay. And so
0: it's sort of like a ratio of creative control. But I, I can see where you're coming from, too, where if you sacrifice a little bit of it to gain more of it later on. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, you can sort of temper your expectations and yeah, sure. I won't have as much creative control for these projects because they're making me a lot of money. And from what I understand, you do, you, you run your videos by the sponsors, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. So
0: like they, they can, I mean, you don't have to go into super specifics here, but like, what is the vetoing? Do they have veto power over a certain
1: number of things? So my longest running sponsor is Squarespace and I have a deal with them through the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Where I'll do um, two videos a month for them until the end of the year, and they want me to send a completed video to them for approval. But all yeah. they care about is their sixty seconds and okay. me putting their logo in the first ten seconds, just for a. And so they have never come back and said this subject is you know doesn't fall within our guidelines. They've never had any any say over that. Now, recently, I made this outdoor patio table. And the sponsor for that video was the parent company is 3M, and uh, they make this colored uh, vinyl adhesive. And so yeah. they said, Hey, we have this colored vinyl adhesive. We want you to do an outdoor project. Pitch us a couple of ideas. And so I said, Well, what if we do an outdoor patio table and it has panes of glass, and each panes, of glass is a different color used in your vinyl adhesive and they said yes and so they actually had a little a little bit of control of what the video was about and mm-hmm. th- those videos are not as fun for me yeah. but sometimes trying to create within parameters makes me a little bit more creative like i mm-hmm. would not have made that table if it wasn't for them i didn't need an outdoor patio table but they gave me these parameters and i'm like well i'll, I'll take that challenge and your money, and uh, I'll see. I'll, I'll see what I can do. So. Um, but most of the time, ninety-five percent of the time, um, the man doesn't care what the video is about as long as I mention their product.
2: Well, that's why it's so interesting to me now, ethically. Just the way that that whole idea has changed, as even the ways of monetizing things and monetizing ideas has become more grassroots. It's like mm. it's not quite as binary as it was. Back when, like, say, in music again, like back when labels had power, because yeah. it used to just be about like crossing that Rubicon. It seems like you know, like you you shake that hand one time and you're you're poisoned to that scene. And now it seems like there's still some of that same attitude around a lot of stuff. At least a lot of the the world that I've come up in, like I've still felt those sentiments around things. But it's so kind of subjective and almost mm-hmm. meaningless in some ways as if it was meaningful then. It's, it seems less so now because it can be around things as simple as like, you know, handwriting your stuff on your CD as opposed to getting it made at Disc Makers or something. Like I've heard that argument around stuff like that. And so it's just so fascinating to me now that it's like, why why is that so important? Mm-hmm. And what is that reluctance or that resistance to making money off of something that you do well and that you take pride in. Because I think there is, personally, I think there is a way to sell out, but I don't think it's the way that everybody thinks. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with making a deal or with cashing in, because that's, I'm completely in your camp, David. Like I'm, I've always been of that mindset as well, that it's like, this is, if you can make money doing this thing that you love and that you're good at and that you kind of have built, like that's phenomenal. Like, yeah, Yeah, grow that as much
1: as you can. I remember, um, like I'm a huge Nirvana fan and I remember like hearing in utero was the label didn't like the mix and they had to go back and remix it. I'm like, ah, the man, the man. Um, but then when it came out, I was like, this is absolutely incredible. I, and then I was like, i wonder what the first mix sounded like. And now years later, you can get, you can get that, that, that first mix and, uh, Um, I don't don't know which one's better. I know which one I'm more used to, but they're still the same songs. But um, I've always kind of wondered how much control these labels and the man has. Like, um, you know, I know the son of a producer and sometimes producers might rearrange songs or say, you know, we need to spice this up a little bit or or, or whatever. But Mm. is that selling out or is that just trying to make the best product you can, you know?
0: I've wondered that too, because, you know, I, I've listened to the, the Butch Vig mixes of Nevermind probably at this point more than I've listened to the Andy Wallace mixes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I really do like these more. And I wonder that too, like what goes into the quality control when there's somebody, you know, some bigger company who is calling the shots because it's on their dime? Like, what are they basing quality control on? Are they basing it on like what the art is most similar to like yeah. in that situation, it might might be
1: more similar to the pop music that was on the radio or, or whatever. (laughs) Well, the Andy Wallace mixes, it's just like, it sounds like there's chorus on everything, but it's not really chorus. It's just, it's just quadruple guitars over everything. (laughs) Right. And, and you know, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't sound as, as real as the, as the butch fig mixes. But.
2: Well, no, I was just going to add that like the Nirvana example really because I mean the debate around Nevermind is kind of an ongoing thing I think in, in this yeah. respect and that's to me why the time frame of any deal that marries money and, and creativity, the time frame matters to me more than anything as far as whether or not it's a sellout move
1: because it's, hmm. it's, that's to me what the cash-in versus sellout is. I have this thought with myself, and I've never had this conversation with anybody else. But have you ever thought about, like, what if Nevermind was re recorded now, but Jack White recorded it at Third Man Records? What yeah. would that sound like? Mm. Like, that would to me be the most amazing thing in the world. It yeah, would sound yeah. so different. But the, the the whole time frame of when things are recorded. I mean, you know, that was the early '90s. That was coming out of '80s when everything just had to sound big and huge, and that just yeah. translated into the the indie scene coming out of that. But I even mean the time frame too is is like the scope,
2: like whether it's a ten album deal or a one album deal, oh, or whether you're yeah. locking in with a sponsor for you know three sixty control for ten years or for one project, like. To me, that really matters because it's, if you kind of cede complete creative control to somebody or split it 50-50 with somebody, but that's like part of a very limited arrangement, that's totally cool. And it's like, you know, it just kind of, if it sucks, you can part ways after. And if it is awesome, you can keep doing it. And I feel like that isn't part of the conversation a lot of times when people consider this. It's like the instant money slides across the table, people consider that like you've You've sold your soul, whatever that mm-hmm. has to be, and like, there's so much nuance there, and there's so many ways to kind of like scrape by and figure out your existence as a creative of any stripe that I just don't think gets enough credit when that conversation is had.
0: I was thinking about this earlier and I think that the ethics of do it yourself come down to three things, primarily three things, and I'm going to call them the three C's and they are commerce, community and creativity. Um, So we've kind of already talked about the commerce, you know, like you're selling goods or you're presenting something that you are getting paid for. What are the ethics of taking money? And like, sure, if you take money and you can get to do that thing more and um, there's nothing wrong with that and maybe there is like some exploitation to to watch out for but that kind of depends on personal ethics perhaps more than ethics that are inherent to it and the creativity side kind of goes hand in hand with that in that you want to be ethical do you want to make ethical decisions for yourself so that you are still like being nurtured as a creative person so i wanted to tell a story about a friend of mine who was making an album all by himself and, and I saw him like outside of a show one night, like slouched over the steps, smoking a cigarette and, and I'm like, what's up with you, man? He's, he's like, well, I, I really want this album that I'm working on to be the best that it can be. But, i just i'm not sure that i can push it over the finish line i'm not sure that i have the skill that it takes to like completely mix and master this by myself and record the rest of the parts that like require instruments that i don't actually play myself but i want to stay true to like the diy ethic and i want this to be you know a diy effort and i was like listen man you beating yourself up about this is not ethical Like you have to be (laughs) kind to yourself. (laughs) Right. Like, and if you want, this, this is based entirely on like your personal desires. You know, if you want this to be a certain way, but you don't have the skills to make it that way, you have a friend who does, or, you know, you have a friend of a friend and, you know, the DIY does not necessarily mean that you can't hire somebody to do a job that you don't know how to do. As a woodworker, if you needed somebody to, oh, I don't know, cut glass to put into a coffee table that you made or something like that, if you were doing like a glass inlay top, that's dangerous as hell if you don't know how to do it yourself. And so, of course, you're going to get somebody else to do it. And I just – that's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of this conversation was that – there are elements of DIY and what, and what that means ideologically within the music scene in particular that I feel are pro actually act prohibitively for the people who engage in them and believe in them and might put people in a position where they feel more stressed than they have to Mm -hmm. because they
1: want it to be DIY all the way. So talking about bringing in the other people, um, so I've been working on a solo album <laughs> for like nice. 15, years, 15 years. Okay, uh, I'll awesome, probably work on awesome. another 15 years. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and well, I started this thinking I want to do everything on here. That's yeah. cause then it's going to be, it's going to be all me.
0: Mm-hmm. Nobody
1: else's input. It's going to be all me. I'm not even gonna let anybody else listen to it and approve mixes or whatever. It's just going to be all me. Um, I don't have that mentality anymore, but my wife is a drummer. Like I can sort of play drums, but I can't play a song. I can play, I can play a loop. I can record that. And then, um, she could, she could play songs. Um, Mm -hmm. so why wouldn't I have her do it? But then there's like, okay, is this no longer my album? So these are, these are little conversations that I've had with myself and, um, Something that I learned a few years ago, there's this artist, Jeff Koons, um, one of the most famous artists out there now, um, sculptures and and things like that. And I've learned that a lot of times he barely even touches his art. He Hmm. has the idea and then he has his people make them for him. Oh. Yeah. So he's got a team of people that, that work for him. So he's approving everything along the way and Mm. it still gets labeled as his art now is that ethical is that is, (laughs) is is that okay like people have strong opinions about this yeah um and i think me 10 years ago would have been like that dude's a sellout and that dude is not an artist that dude has other people do all the hard work for him but me now it's like no, that dude knows how to execute a whole bunch of ideas at one time. And mm-hmm. he is making, a, it, it's, it's hard to make a living as an artist. That's why everybody is not an artist because there's only yeah. room for so many. And so if you can figure out how to monetize it and, <laughs> uh, and, and get your message out there, uh, he's found a way by having other people do it. And so he can he can work on multiple things at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but my, my vision or my thoughts on this have evolved over time.
0: That's interesting to hear too, because as a musician who doesn't play that many instruments, you know, I can play guitar, I can play a little bit of hand percussion, a little bit of piano, but if I want it tracked, if I want it like recorded on a song, I'm going to call on a friend. And if you've ever had the experience of having a drum part in your head, but you're not a drummer and you're trying to explain it to a drummer, how it sounds in your head, it's the most frustrating thing. And so, but, but like if that worked out, then of course I'm going to take that. Of course I want like a, a talented and super skilled drummer to to play on my songs rather than me try to do it on like a, on a MIDI keyboard or, or even like on a, on a kit myself as not a very skilled player. But like, If it was my idea, like kind of start to finish, actually, I'm gonna let Matt speak to this because Matt did a recording session last year for somebody who had like written, who had like arranged and written a song and had other people play it, right? Uh, who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of Josh. The session you did at oh yeah, practice space.
2: Yeah, that was an interesting ride. Um, (laughs) because it's definitely you can kind of see there was a split there where like certain parts or certain instruments or certain people's entire roles felt a little bit contrived, almost like the diplomacy of it was forced. Okay. Um, And then other people, it was kind of, I don't know. It just like, you know, it seemed like he probably could have played those parts himself. And then other people, it was like this perfectly placed, perfectly timed moment of collaboration where that was the person to do that job. And I've never done a session prior to that one where I was able to see, that split so cleanly and see so mm. like, Oh, this is when you delegate like for sure. Mm. This is yeah. when you didn't yeah. and you should have. Cause I mean, I've, I've struggled with that too, actually a lot, like and my feelings have changed very similarly. I think from when I started off and I, I don't know if this was the case for that session, but I know for me it was, it was coming out of that insecurity. It was kind of that that like ego mm-hmm. of like, I don't want anything to dilute the pride that I'm going to feel in this work when I'm finished. Like this thing that I've kind of battled for, or this thing that I might not feel great about now, but I'll feel really proud of when it's out. I don't want any asterisks on that. you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always about me doing every single piece of it, but it was me doing every piece of my slice of it. So it's like if like I was playing guitar on something, I wouldn't want to like give somebody a, a solo section if I was supposed to do the solo section because if people assumed that it was me and I had to say, oh no, actually that was this guy, it would just reinforce that idea of myself that I had as like subpar. And it, I was just like, you know, a kind of a kid mindset, I think. Like mm-hmm. I've thankfully outgrown that to a large extent now, but it, it took a, a real kind of scenic route, you know, and it's... It is funny how like as soon as you kind of take that breath and like let go of whatever strings there are attached to that like you just realize how much you can speed up mm. and how many different ideas and plates you can have spinning at the same time and it's freeing as hell and it's like take it all like I'd like to give all of this away so that I can
1: just be moving. It's really hard to get to that point though. Yeah. Letting go is really hard. Yeah. Cuz now it's now it's a now it's a shared idea and not and not just yours. But mm. like did, did I want it to be just mine for bragging rights or do I want to put out the best thing that I can put out?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and letting go, I think, in the way that you're talking about brings us to the other C, which is community. And Matt and I are kind of a part of a particular DIY community that is mostly focused in music um, and things adjacent to music. But it, so knowing a lot of other DIY musicians, I kind I have a lot of choices. If I wanted to have somebody that played a certain instrument play on one of my songs, I would have a lot of choices to choose from. I'd be exposed to enough artists that I know this person has their certain style. This person has their certain skill level or certain, they get that nice tone that I don't know anybody else that can get that, you know? So I'd have a lot of choices there. And when I think about the DIY community, it's a lot of people who are, I guess, not prohibitive to work with, you know, and that, that's, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about accessibility. And I think the, the, the best thing about DIY culture for me is that it's so easy to collaborate mm-hmm. and it's so easy for people to show their own brand. And it's so easy to, you know, if you were working with a record label and trying to record stuff how many shots would the label be calling and how, you know, would they be the person hiring a session player to play on your track rather than you choosing the person who, who has the sound that you want, you know, that kind of thing. So being exposed to people who have their own sort of thing going on, that's great. Allowing the opportunity for people to be included is even better. And I think that the community part of it for me is always like invite, invite, invite. Like Mm -hmm. I I used to run kind of an underground venue and my big thing was anybody that needs a listening room that is only getting offered bars come here because Mm -hmm. like as an acoustic player that plays kind of softer songs, most of the time it's hard to find an environment where you can actually be heard. So I would say, okay, let's do acoustic shows. If you can't find a listening room, if you're not being heard, come here. And that's how I always tried to foster inclusion and so and in addition to that, I've met a lot of of guitarists, a lot of players who whose sound I know well now because I've been able to hear them that intimately. I can hear the intricacies in their in their playing. So if I wanted somebody with a particular like country blues finger style playing, I would know who to call. If I wanted somebody who's a great jazz player, I would know who to call and so like just just developing a community of people around you through your DIY efforts and then su- suddenly it's not so DIY anymore it's much more do it together and less do it yourself but to me it's always been a community building thing because if you're trying to learn or trying to teach or trying to get an audience or trying to you know consume good art by people then you need to be surrounding yourselves with those people and Allowing those people to enrich your life means that you allow yourself to enrich theirs. And it has to be kind of a cyclical give and take reciprocal thing. So
1: I'm very fortunate that uh, there's a community around me that will mm-hmm. share their projects with me. I'll, I'll get a lot of um, people who will make the projects and send me photos of things mm-hmm. that I've made. And then they make, them. I, I, I love that so much that is so it's hard for me to believe that I would make and desi- I would design to make something and then somebody mm. else w- would think I wanted to do that too and then share that with me and then it's even more rewarding when somebody says I took that but I changed this up I did my own little thing here what do you think or mm. like I don't have the tools that you have so I did it this way and I'm like that is abs- that's exactly why I do this is so I can get this kind of feedback and this 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 involvement from from people watching we're it's such a an amazing thing having the internet around to be able to do with this like the, two of my best friends are my podcast mates and we live hundreds of miles away from each other but we get to yeah. chat and talk every week i don't know are are you and matt are you, are you in the same town or are you far away we're like 45 minutes away okay yeah. but the internet makes the world so much so much smaller and uh the price you pay for that is also the haters that will tell you <laughs> that you're you're doing it wrong but mm-hmm. it's it's a price worth paying because of all of the involvement from from everybody else giving asking me to make this or giving me feedback or telling me I would not have ever done this if it wasn't for you like those those stories are just blow my mind so i'm not really involved in the in music that way so i don't know if it is the same for, for for artists who are making content on whether it's mm-hmm. Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or, or whatever, mm-hmm. if they're getting that, that same kind of kind of feedback, but w- what an amazing time! And of course, no matter what time you're in, you can always say it's an amazing time. But sure, yeah, it just it feels very special that I get to do this. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm, I'm curious when you were, I mean, you, you mentioned opening for touring bands, you mentioned playing at bars, um, was there kind of a, a big underground music scene or, or any kind
1: of a DIY music scene that you were a part of? For sure. So there's Toledo and then there's the college town right next to Toledo called Bowling Green. And, mm-hmm. um, I actually lived in Bowling Green through most of my musical career my music phase i guess yeah. um, and uh there was a slight little rivalry between the like the toledo bands and the bowling green bands because there was <laughs> there was venues in both places but um the it, it felt like in the bowling green area uh because bowling green's a college town mm-hmm. it felt like it was more of a diy thing because there was basically only like three maybe two places to play like official places where you have to get booked and approved Mm -hmm. but there are always house shows because Mm -hmm. it was such a college town and it was a young town there was house shows all the time and anybody could play in a house show and then as soon as you, you know you you play house shows you get recognized and then you get asked to open up for the touring bands coming through town and so i think i've been a part of the the diy music scene as far as like we hosted house shows we played at house shows i recorded my own music on a four track i recorded other bands on a on a four track Uh, i put out my friends albums you know all recorded in my in my living room at my old house Mm. Uh, i felt like i was a major i felt like i was a major part of the scene and uh that particular time meant meant a lot to me just because it was It was so fun. There's always something to do. There was Hmm. always music. And I only surrounded myself by other musicians. So all of my friends played something. And I grew up in the DIY music scene for sure.
0: That's awesome. So that makes me think of um, like a, a conversation that Matt and I have been having here and there lately is what are the effects of music being your social life? You know, and for me, I'm finding myself not necessarily getting bored with it, but a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when we've been talking about like DIY spaces and, and how we define DIY culture, I'm like, well, really, we're part of a music scene. We're not part of a DIY scene because that would encompass a lot more things. That would mean that like I have friends who do woodworking who could teach me how to woodwork. <laughs> that would mean that mm-hmm. um, we have friends who do, I don't know, any, any kind of DIY stuff of which music is a part and that's something that I haven't really gotten to experience that much, except that, you know, we have friends who screen print their own t-shirts and, and make buttons and stickers and stuff like that. Um, but it's all in the service of music still. And so I've been, so I've, I am partially wondering like, is that a thing? <laughs> is, is there such a thing as a DIY scene that has different forms of DIY mm. arts and practices and, and, and hobbies as a part of it? Like, is that something that you've ever run into?
1: Well, so it, it, it sounds like you, you, you use the term DIY as a label. And it makes me think of when I was in college, I had this professor and I was having this conversation with him about, I collected Dr. Seuss books and mm-hmm. he told me, and this changed the way I, I, I looked at things, but he said, you know what I like about Dr. Seuss is that he called himself a doctor and he, but he, but he did, was not a doctor. And yeah. it was just kind of like, and I think about this, this is, you know, 25 years ago. And I think about like, I can call myself whatever I want. I don't have <laughs> to, I don't, it's not anybody else's label. If I want to say I'm an artist, I'm an artist. Mm. But to, to answer the question, there is, um. There is a handmade kind of like culture uh, yeah. here in Toledo, where this amazing woman she put together she she has a a shop where she teaches sewing, but then she brings in other crafters who can teach this type of craft and this type of craft. And then twice a year, she has this huge handmade craft show, and it's mm-hmm. and it's it's become huge. Like the, especially the one that's before Christmas, thousands of people are going through her building and uh, and people are selling their crafts at these craft tables and um there seems to be this this awesome tight community of like handmade DIY artists and we all mm. know each other and i say we I, i'm not as involved as i once was but um everybody knows knows each other and it feels like this like where it feels like it's DIY against Walmart you know like you can go to Walmart and buy your christmas gifts or you can get something that's handmade, you know, right here by, by an artist. And, um, this person who has the store, it's called handmade Toledo. Um, mm-hmm. she has a sticker that says DIY as fuck. And I, I just, <laughs> I love that. I, I like, I, I like that, that just
0: speaks to me so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I appreciate you calling out that I'm using it as a label because my whole approach <laughs> here really has been, if we're going to use it as a label, what can it do for us, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and how can DIY one thing teach us the benefits of DIY another thing? For instance, if I'm a DIY musician, I'm using all of the resources at my fingertips to do, to make the best thing that I can make. Now, to be fair, I don't always outsource when I should outsource. I'm sometimes a little bit too hard on myself and not quite ethical with myself in the way that I make myself suffer that's another story. But, (laughs) um, but like that, I think has made me a better cook. It's made me a better baker. It's made Mm -hmm. me like, how do I look at resources? I look at resources differently. And so I think that if you're a a DIY musician, great, but don't just do it for the punk rock of it all. Do it so that you can learn how to use resources so that you can learn how to source things locally and, and responsibly so that you can learn how to like take care of yourself in a pinch and, and be more responsible and resourceful. And, um, to me, that's the biggest thing of it. So my whole approach here has been, um, and this is kind of a, a long tangled story of like many conversations I've had with people that are in my immediate music scene over the past year or so. But my approach while having these conversations has been, if we're going to call ourselves DIY, then where else do we need to recognize that effort is being put in and that like resources are being used in a, in a wise and responsible way. And yeah, so I I like that you're, that you're calling that out and I will be ordering that sticker.
1: (laughs) Awesome.
2: Matt, anything that you'd want to add? No, I've just been kicking around like very broadly. Why do you think these ethics are so important mm. to DIY cultures of any any type? Because, I mean, the this theme is kind of recurring across a lot of different corners of the industry that I've interacted with so far, but also just it seems like other other industries, other cultures, even just like from touring and stuff, like seeing the same... I don't know, like the same general ethical codes in so many different towns and so many different genres and stuff. It's just, I mean, again, that's more specifically to music, but it's just something that I, I wouldn't have thought would be so universal. And I'm curious if you guys have any ideas why that might be the case.
1: So it feels to me like we we go in, in waves. So like the DIY world, as I know, it, like the handmade world, I think that has exploded over the last six years because that all kind of went away. Yeah. Schools stopped offering industrial arts and woodworking and art classes are going away and less music classes. And we have Amazon. You can get whatever you need, mm. or, or just what you what you want. And um and we just reached this like tipping point of like we can make things ourselves. We, not everything has to be mass produced. I don't have to have the exact same thing my neighbor has. I can make this one of a kind thing. And, you know, we'll we'll probably always have this way. Like when I see music, you, it's easy to divide music up into decades. You, I I think of a certain sound in the eighties and certain sound of the nineties and in the two thousands. And it's just because there's, there's these, there's these different waves, you know, the, Uh, the alternative underground indie scene in the nineties exploded because of overproduced hair metal of of the eighties. And I'm not dissing any of that because I'm guilty of listening to just about (laughs) everything, but then bands like Nirvana in in the nineties, maybe they came from a, a DIY punk rock background, but the music was still pretty darn polished. I mean, we talked about Nevermind and like, there's just like, there's 20 guitars on every single track that you hear. It's just (laughs) layered and so it is, it is very polished and so in the 2000s, like this, to me, it seemed like this indie underground recorded at home on your eight track that seemed to explode. And it just seemed to be like drums didn't have to sound like thunder. You know, it, it drums could sound like drums if they wanted to. Yeah. And uh, like each new wave comes because of what was, what was before it, either to add onto it or to mm. go against it. And, um, mm. I think that's, I see the same thing as DIY right now and, and the handmade movement. Mm.
2: So the ethics would be more kind of just defending it against, in some ways, maybe not quite that starkly, but like, you know, inoculating against some of that corporate influence of like Walmart or Amazon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, ethics means something different to, to, to everybody. So, Mm -hmm. um, like, well, I I need a, I need a new chair. I'm going to make a chair because I can do that. Um, to me, maybe it's unethical for me to go to, ikea and and go get a chair but then the next day i might change my mind i'm like no i would rather make something else i'm gonna go buy i'm gonna go buy that chair so my 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 ethics uh is uh it evolves or de-evolves all the time yeah
2: that's a good way to have ethics though that's what ethics are really kind of fun i think for that reason because they're sort of right fleeting and we make them up so we can that's (laughs) diy as fuck in and of itself
1: and yeah exactly and it's fun to have to be around other people with the same ethics mm-hmm, and it's yeah. also fun to be around other people who have different <laughs> ethics you know and <laughs> yeah, it yeah. kind of um because it gives you a a a platform to to shout off of and and to take a stance so mm. it's you know you can you can use it to your advantage either way
2: do you see any parallels in, in previous generations or previous industries even to the way that these ethical codes are shifting now. I mean, if they are codes, like if we can codify them that much, like I really kind of, at least completely from the outside, I really think it's cool what's happening in kind of like the YouTube space or in the maker's space. Like the fact that, like we were talking about earlier with selling out, like you can monetize, you can commercialize some of this stuff and essentially give yourself longevity that you wouldn't have been able to have if you're say like, you know, any punk band, like living you know, 15 people to a room and and recording in the house, like eventually that stuff tends to crack at some point, whether it's because people just can't take it anymore physically or, you know, life just changes or the neighborhood gets raised because all of a sudden the bands get famous and it's good for condos. Now, like whatever it is, (laughs) like at a certain point, it's almost like if you're too, if you cling too hard to that initial embryonic DIY code that you had, it mm. doesn't scale very well. Mm. And you almost lose the autonomy that you're trying to defend because somebody bigger than you can come and grab it. And something that I just think is really cool about like the the maker's world as you've described it so far and as I've seen like from your videos is that you can take that control and arrange it for yourself by making the sponsorship deals that you want or making mm-hmm. the type of content that you want or having granted. I mean, it's, you don't own YouTube, but you own your corner of YouTube. And that's... Yeah, That's really neat to me. Like, Have you seen any parallels in other worlds with that? Or do you think that's true too? Because <laughs> that's completely external for mine. Yeah.
1: So. Um, I would imagine a 70 year old woodworker who's done all his life and knows like every, every single little trick and he learned them the hard way and mm-hmm. has decades of experience might look down on me and say, you're a hack. You're not even a woodworker you just have a, a social media following and he, he, he's right I don't have <laughs> I don't have all that experience but the thing is I don't care yeah right Maybe you don't think I work at my woodworking craft as hard as you did hmm. but I work on my business craft way more than you will ever know. I mean, I know I'm getting away from the question, but I'm just, there's so much like in previous generations looking down on the new generation and part of me and part of the the punk rock in me is just like, I don't, I don't give a shit. I don't, <laughs> I don't care what you think. I yeah. I've, I've figured out how to hack my own life and I get to do what <laughs> I want to do. So yeah. um, screw you. You can, you can hop on the train or not, but those who, want to hop on the train, I would try to help lift. Like I want, I want kids to get into woodworking. I want kids to get into art. I want kids to get into, to making. So like, you know, screw the older generation if they don't. And I, and I'm older myself, I'm 46, but I feel <laughs> like I'm 26. Um, but I, I feel like uh, the kids is uh, where we need to focus because things are going to change. So, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be a totally different scene. 10 years from now, I don't even know where music can go DIY ten years from now. Like, is everybody just like humming into their phone, and then it translates it into MIDI, and then all of a sudden you can you can turn that into any instrument that you want, and put out your album in in a matter of two days. Just I don't know. Like, you can do that now, but maybe maybe ten years from now that's that's the norm, but musicians now are like no in my day we we had to record 128 tracks in pro tools yeah and that was the, that was the only way that you did it you know
2: yeah.
1: uh, and we didn't quantize you kids yeah. quantize, quantize these days
2: yeah. that's funny because it's like the older generations almost or yeah like even this generation now like speaking to the future one it's almost like it's just a way of kind of qualifying all the pain and hardship and money and oh,
1: time like you hit it right
2: on head. it's like good yes. god if i if this doesn't mean something what the hell have i done for the last 20 years of my life if i could just yeah push a i think now. i think
1: you hit it right there that that's mm. it yeah mm-hmm. we're we're i mean we're always trying to put meaning into our work so when when the kids come along and and it's easier for them it's yeah. you know we yeah. can we can say that well they didn't work as hard as us well Things are always going to get easier. That's just the way technology works.
2: Yeah, and no one likes getting outsmarted by, like, a 14-year-old either. And that's always the way that message is delivered is, like, what the hell is TikTok? And why is this (laughs) lapping me in terms of success?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just watched this this YouTube video of, like, this 10-year-old girl playing Rush songs on the (laughs) bass. And I'm just, like, "Uh, so angry at the end of the video because she was so amazing <laughs> yeah like i don't even know how her fingers could stretch and play these things uh, i i uh, uh, yeah <laughs>
2: yeah and that's i think a very valid response to that because it's yeah it's visceral it's like what the hell like why but yeah i have felt that about a number of things too but it's It's funny because it's like if you're not watching it, it's easy to let that make the hop into the ethical or the philosophical and and start spinning worldviews from it. But it's such a purely emotional and valid response to just kind of feeling thwarted for
0: Mm -hmm. a split second. Well, and I recently had, I didn't have that exact feeling, but like within the last year for the first time, I felt like I had this thought, like I miss being a millennial. And then I was like, wait, I'm still a millennial. What do I miss actually? And (laughs) (laughs) it was like an emotional attachment to a time in my life when like my generation was the future, you know, like when you kind of have a collective identity as a generation and you're looking at like, yeah, this is this is how we're going to influence the world. And so very specifically, I was <laughs> I was missing and lamenting like the year leading up to the 2016 ele- election. Like I was very much missing the the Bernie Sanders era and <laughs> finding myself going like, oh. To be in like my, my late twenties as an activist again, you know, like <laughs> there's an emotional attachment to when you felt like you had an impact on the future, you know, and then suddenly like you're in the future, and whether you've had an impact or not, you miss kind of the the potential, or you miss there, there's an emotional attachment that you draw to when you were developing your well, your ethics and your yeah. your ideals and and your your skills and what you wanted to contribute to the world overall so it's a there's
1: something to it it's making me think like do i care less about ethics as i get older as far as like standing what i believe in you know in my younger days yeah well let's go to all the marches let's let's protest this Mm. and now in my older days i'm like i still have those same thoughts but I don't want to go to the marches. I don't, you know, like I, I'll, just, I'll just, I'll just say, I'll just say something on my Facebook. That's, that's easier. Um, I'd rather not leave the house. I'd rather not leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> am I, am I ethics changing or am I just getting lazy or just old? I don't know. Well,
0: I had one more question. And it it could lead us down a whole other rabbit hole. So we don't really have to go into it. But, um, because doing something DIY often means that you can like source things locally or you can share stuff with community or you can like, you know, be a part of your own learning process and enriching your own life, blah, 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 all the stuff that we talked about. This is a dumb question, but is DIY inherently more ethical Hmm. Define ethical in this in this question. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, because a lot of my like basis for that question was like environmentally more ethical or economically more ethical to oneself. Well, in that sense,
1: of course, of course. So I get a lot of wood my my grandpa has this friend, and he cuts down trees and mills up the wood and sells it super cheap to friends and, and family in the area. And re- unfortunately, he just passed away a couple months ago. But um, mm-hmm. I got all this wood that was grown just forty miles from here. How how wow. cool is that? Yeah, and I can I can make things out of that, or I could go to Home Depot and buy red oak that was on a truck that traveled across the country to get to where I am at and then, you know, is, is sold by the, by the, man to me. Mm-hmm. And there's many chains of people making money along the way. Like sometimes that's necessary, but there is a, a better sense of like how, how freaking cool is it that I made this thing out of a tree that just grew 40 miles from here. That's, that's real. I don't think of it as ethics as much as maybe I should, i just think of it in in cool factor and if yeah. doing something cool makes me more ethical to the diy community then, then that's a that's an awesome byproduct mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of times i'm just i'm thinking about the cool factor and many times the cool mm-hmm. factor is the the better choice ethically
0: yeah. environmentally Yeah. And I mean, and that makes me think of, you know, this doesn't have so much to do with ethics as much as it has to do with developing skills and learning how to use tools better. The only thing I really do with hand tools is I've been trying for the past two, one year or two, um, I guess since the pandemic started, because I couldn't go to a a luthier anymore to get my guitars fixed. So I was like, I'm going to learn how to fix my own guitars. So I'm gradually getting a little bit better than that. And I've always been obsessed with the ethics around wood harvesting. Mm -hmm. And it's something that like, I wouldn't say that I'm an activist about or anything, but like, I like to keep myself up to date with, okay, what are we running out of? What, what kind of wood should I not be buying? If I'm in the market for a new guitar, should I be steering clear of, you know, a certain type of rosewood or a certain type of ebony or something? Mm -hmm. And that's always been very important to me too. So even, even like as a consumer of products that you're going to have to repair yourself, like, keep in mind what's going into the harvesting and the, and the manufacturing of that product.
1: Something that isn't quite talked about enough is all the waste that goes into DIY Mm. as well. Ah. So while I'm working on a project, you know, I have a lot of paper towels. There's a lot of wood waste. Mm -hmm. I'm using a lot of electricity. There is, I have to hop in, hop in the the vehicle to go get screws and, and this and that. And, not everything can be sourced here in Toledo. So it has to be delivered via a truck to my house and the packaging that's involved in that. Um, so sometimes DIY can be very wasteful as well. I mean, I do try to think about it and sometimes it's, it's, you you can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. I know I'm using chemicals for a finish or, I leave a can of paint open and now that whole can of paint is ruined. And like, there's a lot of waste that's not really talked about in the DIY world. Matt, what do you think inherently
0: more ethical or how would you define ethical? Like what part of the ethics matters most to you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I started off with just thinking that it's, it is inherently
2: more ethical just because it's inherently just smaller. And like, by definition, like at the very least you, you can't necessarily do as much damage as something that's more skilled up, but Sure. But I mean that's David's point was was cool there. I never really considered the waste of it. And so now I'm kind of mulling that over that <laughs> is also because that brings in an entire <laughs> new realm of of the ethics of it, which is you could even call into question how you're how you're spending your time, you know, like different ethical ramifications of Oh, sure. If more of your Time that you could be devoting to loved ones or to your community or whatever.
1: Yeah. Is spent doing a craft Right now, now, (laughs) we are not contributing to our community. Yeah, exactly. Just by recording this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: and Joel, by editing the podcast, will be contributing less for a longer period
1: of time because he'll be hunkered down
2: (laughs) in his house fixing this thing.
1: So, like, he could totally be saving uh, a a homeless person, but no, he chose to edit a podcast instead. So, think about that later.
0: God yeah. damn it.
2: <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know if there's anything besides some form of a balance that you can strike. Like, I don't know if there's an, a more ethical or less ethical side as much as there might be just a kind of correct, almost utilitarian balance of things that you can, mm. that you can hit. I, I think a lot of times
1: it's just being aware, yeah. aware of, of what you're doing, aware of what you're throwing away. And maybe the next time you'll figure out how to produce less waste or mm. less travel or less of an impact on the environment or your community. So um, just being aware. Yeah. Mm. Well, and like I said earlier,
0: I think a big part of the, the ethics of it is, is to be, if you're a creative person, is to be kind to yourself in the creative state. And maybe not demand perfection or demand so much time of yourself that you deprive yourself of community, that you deprive yourself of whatever service you could be to to something else. So as far as like (laughs) editing the podcast goes, (laughs) you know. Ideally, I have some some sound presets that I plug everything into, and that that does a lot of the work for me. Do I have good ones set up? Yes and no. Like I always think that they can be better because <laughs> I am a perfectionist and then I'm not kind to myself. And then I do waste a lot of my own time when I could be keeping other connections alive you know It's a,
1: is it ethical that you're using the preset and not treating each audio track as a unique <laughs> individual like you can go really deep with this
2: <laughs> yeah that's why ethics is the shit man that's like it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can
0: just turn them on themselves it's, it's awesome
1: it's yeah, the best
2: yeah
0: yeah so i i mean i think that that has so much to do with personal fulfillment and i think it has so much to do with especially when it comes to art and being a creative person and creating a product how are you viewing that product and how are you viewing the impact that it has on you and the world around you so if it has a if it's less expensive for you to get it into the world because you're doing it yourself and not paying somebody else to do it then it has a good a positive impact on you if it has a negative impact on the environment because you ordered like 20 piecemeal things instead of a, a kit or something like that, then maybe that has a negative impact on the environment and maybe do it differently next time. And but then, you know, the personal p- fulfillment part of it is also, how much can you afford, I mean, this isn't how I would approach it, but how much can you afford to be caring about the environment? And can you leave that up to other people who are activists so that you can kind of do your thing a little bit more? I don't agree with what I just said, but (laughs) some people probably approach it that way. And, um, you know, they, they know, well, at least there are people who are doing their part.
1: You can always, I mean, if you feel like what you're doing, is wasteful you can always make up for that by reducing your carbon footprint and another mm-hmm. area of, of your life so like mm-hmm. sports i love f1 racing it's like it's like the only sport that i that i really care about and they they have combustion motors that spits out carbon into into the air and they travel around the world to run these races that's a huge impact but yeah. they want to be carbon neutral by 2030 and so mm-hmm. Maybe you have a gasoline engine that does harm here, but you balance that out by reducing that harm in another place. And it's just like Matt said: there's a there's a balance. You have to you have to do one, and as long as you're aware, as long as you have goals, as long as you are pushing forward, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay (laughs) to have some waste.
2: Well, that's why I liked the point about the awareness of it because it allows you to be more adaptive, and it. I think it gives a little bit more credit to like I was saying earlier about like the the time frame of a, you know, a financial dealing or something like you can kind of apply the same logic here. And I think the biggest hang up in a lot of these types of conversations and different DIY scenes and things that have been around is just the idea that once there's a semblance of a decision that needs to be made, it has to somehow be codified and has to somehow go into this big kind of rule book of like this is – this is what we stand for, this is how it's done, and, you know, we need a quorum if we're gonna um, change the feelings around this at all, and I think that's where a lot of unnecessary waste happens and where a lot of Mm. kind of, I don't know, just consternation happens that doesn't need to Mm. because, like, you're right, like, if you see, like, okay, yeah, this is gonna be tough to change these engines out right now, but we can change what the ship is powered by that gets these things to Mm -hmm. Europe next year. Like, That's a much healthier way to address it. That's probably a much more effective way to address it environmentally in the long run. Mm -hmm. And it lets the fans keep getting what they want. The drivers keep getting what... Like, it's just a much more holistic solution. But come the next moment, there's going to be another decision that needs to be made.
1: I think it's, it's really important for large corporations, let's say F1 to be ethical and to be aware of the impact that they have because they are developing technologies that actually trickle down into other businesses. So mm. right now, the the race cars, it's a combination of a combustion engine and electric. And okay. um, every so many years, they, they move the power band to more electric and less um, reliant on the combustion engine. And eventually down the road, it'll all, it'll all be electric. But the technology that they use to develop that then goes down into automotive manufacturers and then mm-hmm. that trickles down into your lawnmower right yeah. like it like so i think it's more important that we hold accountable these these large corporations and businesses to do the right thing because they have yeah. much more of a negative impact than mm-hmm. us as an individual I like
0: how Matt put it earlier, it Is one of the reasons to do something DIY to inoculate yourself against corporate interests. And one of the things that I had written down a few days ago when I was thinking about this topic was that a lot of people equate DIY. I mean, we already talked about how putting a label on it can mean a lot of different things. But I think a lot of people, when they think DIY, one thing they might think is doing a lot with a little. And with limited resources, how can I, you know, do an amazing interior decorating job or something like that, using all reclaimed materials and, and and whatnot? That's doing a lot with a little. That's not putting a lot of environmental demand on the project that you want to accomplish. Or that's not, you know, the opposite of this would be doing a little with a lot, which means a, a lot goes into having something shipped to you. Maybe we define a lot as the amount of corporate interest that is backing you. But then like what you put out is just a minuscule piece of that corporate interest. And so doesn't have as much significance to you or significance to them. And like, you're ultimately not cared for as much as you would be with a, if we're talking music, a smaller record label with a more intimate relationship with their clients, you know? So that's one of the things that I thought of earlier is, Looking at it as doing a lot with a little, because the opposite, doing a little with a lot, is not practical and in a lot of cases is unethical. Because if you're demanding a lot of impact and a lot of burden on the environment or on whatever else in order for you to accomplish something, then I think it's about balancing the scales in a way that makes sense for both your own fulfillment and the fairness that. Your actions
1: have to the world around you mm-hmm. yeah i uh <laughs> fulfillment is actually one of my one of my favorite words because like I get such satisfaction out of making the videos sometimes more so than than the the, the projects th- themselves, and so mm-hmm. i think if if you're of the right mindset, your fulfillment will naturally be the right thing right mm-hmm. like if you yeah. if you are generally genuinely a good person fulfilling yourself first thinking about yourself first should have a good impact on the world if you're if you're a good person and most of us are
0: and that's our show as always black market therapy is a dead and mellow production and to stay in touch with us you can follow black market therapy and dead and mellow records on social media and if you have any questions or comments you can send them to black market therapy podcast at gmail.com We'd like to thank David Paciuto for joining us this week. If you'd like to hear more from him, we'll be releasing a bonus episode next week that'll be all about our shared love of guitars. And of course, be sure to check out his YouTube channel, Make Something, his podcast, Making It, or any one of his books on DIY woodworking projects. We'll see you soon.